you know, it's important when we talk about it, that we talk about it using the right terms. So it's not a conflict. It's an occupation. Uh, it's not evictions. It's ethnic cleansing. Um, it's not simple discrimination. It's apartheid. And so it's important for us to use the terms that accurately describe the situation. So th that's the first thing is that when we talk about this, we have to talk about it with truth. Amir, what's going on? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Adam. 100%. So um, the uh, it's funny because you always introduce yourself as Amir, but then you always say, um, what do you say, Amir Zahir or something like that, if you're American? I say, I say, hey, for everybody, this is Amir Zahir. And for white people, that's Amir Zahir. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, what's going on? Hey, by the way, so you know, they always say that like people who are bold are usually more sophisticated, or at least all my bold friends say that. I think this is kind of like maybe a, a way of making you guys feel a little better. I don't know. Well, first of all, I don't think you guys is a politically correct way to say it. I think that's, you know, I think that's raw. You know, but let me say this I always tell people that my hair is like Palestinians and my head is Palestine. They have been driven from their homeland, okay, mm -hmm. and um, they can uh, live anywhere else in the world that they want. Anywhere else in the world that they want to live, they can live. I have a refugee camp on my back. Uh, I find Palestinians everywhere. I just look down. I'm like, what are you guys doing down there? They're opening up gas stations and medical practices. So, you know, that's that's how I, I they want to come back to their homeland, but uh, they have been refused their right of return. Well, I mean, hey, what? So, what got you into comedy, man? Like, tell me, tell us more about your background. I feel like my first joke didn't really do well. I thought, I thought that, I thought that hair joke was going to do better, but it's okay. I so was, it's I a, was laughing. Trust me. No, no, no. It's funny. I mean, it's that a, funny. it's a one-person audience, Adam. I need a little do feedback. Think, wait, okay? do you think? <laughs> do you think we should add some like voice effects or something for you? Like, some no, no, effects? not, not at all. No, no, no. I want it to be organic. <laughs> I guess that joke wasn't funny. That's what comedians learn. They try out their jokes and they move on. Okay, so what'd you ask me? How I get into comedy? Well, I was in law yeah. school and um, they were bringing a comedian to campus. And I decided that, uh, you know, they asked if anyone wants to do like sort of open mic, fill up some time before that comedian goes on stage. And I tried and I told a couple of jokes about my dad and everybody laughed. And I thought, wow, this is it's pretty cool. You know, it's pretty cool. And um when I graduated from law school, I said to myself, let me try becoming a comedian. And if I fail, I'll go become a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. They, they started paying me to tell jokes. And so um, I, uh, uh, I, I decided that I want to keep doing this as a profession. And luckily, it's been pretty successful. And how old were you when you became a comedian officially? Well, you know, I don't know if you can pinpoint when I became a comedian, because I mean, you know, I hear a lot of people now who do open mics here and there and they say, I'm a comedian. And you're not, you know, you're not a comedian until you get consistently paid to tell jokes and you can like make a living from it. For me, that started happening probably around 2008 or nine, where I could like survive from comedy. Um, and then it just started blossoming a lot more after that. Okay. And like, just, you know, uh, just out of curiosity, I'm really because I'm trying to imagine the conversation I would have with my parents and being like, hey guys, uh, I'm yeah, going right. to law school. 
And right. instead I decided I'm going to go crack jokes. Right. <laughs> how, did, how did that occur? Yeah, they didn't, they didn't totally, you know, they weren't totally supportive of it in the beginning. Um, but you know, my parents are pretty open. They're kind of hippies, you know, they were pretty open and they finally, you know, when I bought a house and I bought a car, they were like, all right, this is serious. And uh, now, you know, they, they, they get excited when people share my videos and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my mom still tells people I'm a lawyer. Oh, really? Okay. You know, which is fine. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's, I'm a lawyer, but, uh, but, uh, um, you know, it, look, it, it's not an easy, I, I, I would say to anybody out there, if you want to do something like that, follow an artistic sort of path, you have to do it fully because if you don't do it fully and just make that your main focus, if not your only focus, you'll have no idea whether or not you're good enough to succeed at it. You really have to do it fully. You might fail, but you won't really know unless you really, really do it fully. And so that's what I decided to do. And, uh, you know, luckily it's turned out pretty good. I mean, you've you've done some really interesting things. I mean, like one of the biggest things that I was reading about when it came to you and the background that you have is just the like introducing Bernie Sanders for twice, 2016 and 2020. Like so, like you know, you've had a lot of cool accomplishments. So that's kind of that's kind of pretty sweet. How how did that happen? Just out of curiosity. Where, where well, you know, from? actually, yeah, actually, in 2016, I was a surrogate for Bernie Sanders, which means a surrogate means that. Um, you know, you basically serve as an agent for the candidate when the candidate can't be there to different communities around the country. I was especially sort of reaching out to Arab American communities to get there to come out and vote. I did it again in 2020 and 2020. Actually, it was just once when I introduced him at a rally in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, which is, of course, the Arab American capital. It's uh, you know like Arab Disneyland. It's awesome out here. And uh, I introduced him there. And uh, it was a really amazing rally. You know, he came, the campaign made a decision to come here in the days leading up to the Michigan primary. And he ended up winning Dearborn overwhelmingly. He ended up winning the Arab neighborhoods of Dearborn by 80%. So, you know, his dedication to coming into our community was built on, you know, what he wanted to do, but also, also built on his willingness to bring in Arab Americans into the campaign, like me and others, to be voices for him. And, uh, you know, frankly, we're seeing the reason why we should have gone with Bernie and not Biden, especially with this latest stuff going on in Palestine. I mean, Biden is a disaster for Palestine. And I said it back then and people got mad at me and I'm and I'm saying it again now that this is this is why we were supporting Bernie, because when it comes to the things that the president really fully controls, like foreign policy, we need someone in there whose foreign policy is directed by morality. And that's not this guy. But, you know, speaking on that topic, do you do you really think like uh, Bernie is an amazing guy and no doubt. Right. But, you know, just because of how the White House is operating and ran, like, you know, any political race that he was in, he wasn't even part of the discussion in terms of the finals. It was more like, you know, Trump versus Biden. You know, Bernie was kind of there floating. Um, why do you think that's the case? Like we continuously see that because that's the, not the first time Bernie's ran or tried to run before. And since you've had experience in his campaign, I'm curious to hear your feedback. Well, Bernie threatened the sort of democratic structure uh, or the party of the structure of the Democratic Party. Bernie's not a Dem Bernie is never Democrat. He was never registered Democrat, never ran under the Democratic Party. But unfortunately, the two party system, you know, if you want to run for president without being a third party, third party chances really are, are zero. You really have to try to win the nomination of a major party. And so he ran in the Democratic Party. And frankly, Democrats should be happy he ran in the Democratic Party and not as a third party candidate. But 
um, he was never part of that sort of old boys and girls club of the Democratic Party. So they were kind of threatened by him. They didn't like him. And as we saw, after he won Iowa and he won New Hampshire and he won Nevada in the last presidential primary, everyone lined up behind Joe Biden. I mean, it was only the fourth primary, South Carolina, and Joe Biden won it pretty handily, as everybody thought he would. And immediately every candidate within 24 to 48 hours dropped out and endorsed Joe Biden. So the entire Democratic Party sort of consolidated. It was it was class consolidation of power. Mm. And it was really, really a shocking thing to see. But we kind of knew that they were going to do that once they felt really threatened. And so that's what they did with with the Bernie Sanders. And that's how we ended up in the situation that we are today. If the primary would have gone on with a few different people staying in, obviously Bernie would have won. But they decided to consolidate all their power. Um, and uh, and Biden ended up taking the primary in that way. So, you know, was it a conspiracy? Yeah. And look, not all conspiracies happen behind closed doors. Yes, it was a conspiracy and uh, and it worked. And um, before I, I know, like before Trump exited office, there was whole this whole peace treaty or peace plan that he was attempting to release. Um, okay, let's talk about that for a little bit, because I know you've been politically pretty involved and in just, you know, speaking upon Palestinian people and what's going on. What are your thoughts on that before he like, how did you believe in that? Did you see the future in that at all? Or were you kind of just op- against kind of Trump's whole verdict? No, I mean, the, the what he called the deal of the century was basically a deal that entrenched apartheid and Palestinians living in sort of isolated enclaves without any connections to each other. If you saw the maps, it looked like mm-hmm. a total Swiss cheese. I mean, the Palestinians were not getting anything. And Trump was, you know, Trump bent over backwards to give the Israelis whatever they wanted for, I guess, domestic policy reasons. He was giving them whatever they wanted. But no, there was no fairness in that. There was no, you know, it was not something that, you know, I supported and that any Palestinian supported, frankly. So, I mean, um, you know, it is not anything that was based on any ideas of fairness. Not that the Americans have ever done anything with Palestinians based on idea of fairness, but this was like especially ridiculous. And so every Palestinian sort of outrightly rejected it. Um, it, it basically was a land grab of most of the West Bank for the Israelis. So, no, there was never any hope for that plan by Trump. And do you see, like now with what's going on with the Palestinian conflict, I, what I've noticed, at least from a social media standpoint, is a lot more people are speaking on it um, versus yeah. before. Uh, and I just, just you know, I, I, I felt as if like because of the whole BLM movement and the whole social outrise in terms of like what happened last couple of years, you know, with social media becoming a thing against revolutions. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool to see a lot of different nations speak up on it. What what can you educate us from your perspective and to the listeners? Because most of my listeners on this podcast aren't necessarily Arab or any of that kind of part of the region. So a lot of people will probably be approaching this very novicely. What can you kind of educate us on what's going on right now and uh, your perspective on it all? Well, you know, it's important when we talk about it that we talk about it using the right terms. So it's not a conflict. It's an occupation. Uh, It's not evictions. It's ethnic cleansing. Um, It's not simple discrimination. It's apartheid. And so it's important for us to use the terms that accurately describe the situation. So that's the first thing is that when we talk about this, we have to talk about it with truth. Uh, 
And yes, things have been changing. A lot of it is the past four years, but a lot of it is the past 40 years, the work of Palestinian American and Arab American activists keeping these things alive and keeping the, the, the narrative of Palestinians alive. And so um, that is, uh, um, we're, it feels like a quick change because, you know, feels like it's all happening at once. But it's kind of like when you watch a soccer game, like if you watch a soccer game, it looks boring most of the time. And then there's like that one minute where they have an opportunity to score a goal. But that one minute was set up by all the boring 40 minutes that happened before it. So that's kind of the same thing here, right? All of the work uh, behind the scenes that has gone on um, has set up uh, this moment where people, a lot of non-Arabs, non-Palestinians in America are standing up and saying, this is wrong. And that's coming directly uh, at the direction of Palestinian and Arab American activists. And what are your thoughts on like the whole like because a lot of my friends, at least when I talk to them about the awareness aspect and protests and uh, going out there and speaking on it, I myself actually had a you know pretty heated argument with a couple of friends in terms of just the effectiveness of protests. And I know you've actually hosted a couple and you've been, been involved in a couple. Um, what's the uh, where how do you see protests, uh, you know, connecting to the level of awareness, allowing people to, I guess, um, understand more on what's going on in the occupation in Palestine and how do you see it being effective towards a resolution? Well, protests and rallies do two things. They can educate people who don't know about it, but more importantly, they energize people who do, you know, they, they let people who have been working on these things privately in their own circles know that there's thousands of people who are with them and, and give them energy to leave that protest and then keep talking about Palestine afterwards. That's much more important to me. You don't educate too many people when you're walking down the street, but you energize and raise the morale of the people who have come to the protest. Um, and then as far as a resolution, I'm not really interested in a resolution. People always say to me, you know, do you make people laugh to for, for, for peace? Or I'm not interested in peace. I'm interested in justice. If there is a resolution, whatever that means, because a resolution could mean I keep your neck, my foot on your neck and you just accept it. That's a resolution. But I, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in justice. So if there is justice for my people, then that will lead to peace and a resolution. But there's a reason that when we march, we say no justice, no peace. We don't say no peace, no justice. We say no justice, no peace. In other words, there's a chronology to the thing. You give us justice, we give you peace. That's the way it works. And so uh, when people talk about resolutions and peace and all that kind of stuff, uh, they can kind of miss me with all that. That's not what I'm interested in at all. I'm interested in justice. So define to me justice. like Because the way I look at it is like, you know, how, how can like the killings of thousands of people, I mean, what's the worst case scenario that you can do to someone who's done that? Well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, like, you know, let's just let's, so let's just, you know, the people that, you know, when it comes to like, you know, the killings of all these innocent people, when you say justice out of curiosity from your from your perspective, what is what what would have to happen for justice to occur? Well, I mean, look, us, there would be justice would mean accountability for those kinds of things. But justice also in a greater way means going after the real disease of what's happening in Palestine, which is apartheid and discrimination and ethnic cleansing and racism. You have to fix that. Palestinians are treated differently in our homeland because we're not Jews. It's as simple as that. Uh, 
And if that idea, which people call Zionism, goes away, then you can start to work towards justice. There will never be any sort of peace. There might be moments of quiet. There might be times when things are calm, but that's not peace. Real peace is based on justice. And so when there is justice, an end to Zionism, an end to inequality, an end to uh, ethnocracy, an end to theocracy in the land of Palestine, then we'll move to something called peace. But in the meantime, it's not going to get there. We have to always talk about justice and not just peace. And um, just for the listeners to understand, you know, in terms of the occupation itself, could you give us like a little history rundown on how it started and the two different perspectives from both sides? Because I think a lot of people here, at least, you know, a lot of uh, people that I know in business, you know, when we discuss this, these kind of conversations, everybody has a different perspective. Everybody assumes one or one or the other is right. And, and, you know, facts speak louder than words, right? So, um, just if you could give us like a little bit of a history rundown on how it all begun and um, just kind of how to have when it comes to people asking you about uh, the occupation itself, what kind of answer do you tend to give them? Well, I keep it really simple, which is they kicked us out, they stole our land and they don't let us come back. It's really simple. That's all it is. I mean, Zionism has targeted the land of Palestine to be as a national homeland for Jews. And that would be a great idea if there weren't already millions of people there that you have to kick out in order to create that homeland. That's why I make I made a video last summer called Echaduha Mafrushi, which means they took it fully furnished. They didn't come there and there was nothing. They're literally living in our houses, like literally. You know how sometimes a white girl says literally and it's not literally? Like, you know, I was literally going <laughs> to die. No, yeah. this is literally. They're literally living in our grandparents' houses because they kicked us out and stole our land and didn't let us come back. That's the root of the whole thing. You address that and do away with the apartheid and racism that currently exists, then we can move towards justice. It's never really useful to, I mean, sure, you can get into a much longer history, right? And a much more detailed history, but really it's just, they stole our land, they kicked us out and they don't let us come back. That's why we're angry. You know, my my four grandparents are born in Akka, Nazareth, Yaffa, and Al-Khalil. And they are buried in California, Delaware, and Jordan, and not because they want to be. They were buried in those places against their will. That's why we're angry. This life of refuge and, and displacement for 73 years, that has to be addressed. Palestinian refugees, there should be no shame in saying, Every single Palestinian refugee and their descendants should be able to go home. Doesn't mean anybody's got to leave or get kicked out, but they should be able to go home. Until you address that, there cannot be any sort of justice. And you grew up here in the United States? I we came to America when I was 3. You you came from a you were so you were you so you were born in Palestine. I was born in Jordan. Jordan. Okay. Okay, really cool. Yeah. And, you know, like going back a little bit more on like your um, how do you tend to use just I'm curious, how do you use your career to kind of from a comedic standpoint, do you tie any of this into it? Yeah. Have you have you done your research about me, Adam? I do all my (laughs) I do. I do my terms. I, I like to do my I like to do a lot of my interviews from like in terms of like as if I know nothing, you know, so. Okay. Okay. So I, uh, (laughs) so yes, Palestine is a major part of my comedy. I mean, it's, 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 
it's the center of my comedy. I've done comedy tours about Palestine. I've done comedy tours in Palestine. I do a comedy festival every year in Palestine since 2015. Palestine is the center of when somebody asks me what my religion is, I tell them I'm Palestinian. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> it is the center of everything that I do. And it's definitely the center of my comedy. What are some interesting stories you could share with us on, on like things you had to deal with when it comes to because I'm sure that's like a very tough subject to speak on. It's very sensitive for a lot of people. Well, I mean, look, comedy is about telling your story. Comedy is about being honest and transparent. And that's what we try to do. You know, comedy is about uh, um, sending a message with humor, a truthful message. Sometimes as a comedian, people will say to me, I, I never know when you're being serious. And I tell them I'm always being serious. I'm just doing it with with laughter, but I'm always being serious. And so, um, you know, it is it is about pointing out the hypocrisy in life, the ridiculousness in life. And as a Palestinian, there's a lot of that, you know, whether you're on the border and dealing with the immigration, whether you um, are dealing with the sort of reactions you get from people when you tell them you're Palestinian here, um, the different sort. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that inform, you know, what I do in my comedy and all that. Okay. And, you know, I like if you were to be given the power to uh, kind of this is kind of like a, just a random question. If you were to be given the power <laughs> to do as you wish with what's going on, what steps would you take as like, let's say if you were a political leader and you had the the the, the ability to execute on something, what's the first step? Well, I mean, we have to fight for complete equality for all people in the land of Palestine. So that means no more West Bank, Gaza Strip, Israel, just one big country. And everybody has the same rights, regardless of religion or tribe or history or genetics. Um, and so one secular democratic state with equality for all. That's the only way it's going to work. And that's what I believe in. Um, and if we can get there, then at least you have a framework for some sort of success. But as long as there's one state called a Jewish state and one state called an Arab state and all this kind of stuff, um, especially for Palestinians, it's not going to work. So you, so the, the way you look at it is the first step is we have to first unite everybody together and then we could kind of discuss from there. Well, no, the first step is we all have to agree that Zionism is racism and that it needs to end. And the notion of having a state or an ideology where one group of people has more rights than somebody else that has to end. That's the first step. When you can get to that step, then you can everything else becomes a lot easier. We've never been able to get that past that first step with Zionists since 1948, way before actually. And you know, I'm a lot of I get this question a lot, like why does the violence continue occurring? And you know, would love to hear your perspective on that. Well, again, you know, it's the violence, which is mostly one-sided, is uh, a symptom of the disease. You know, uh, the violence keeps occurring because of everything that I said to you, racism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, discrimination. If those things didn't happen and Palestinians had freedom of movement and freedom of trade and freedom of travel and all these kinds of things, you wouldn't see these kinds of things happening. How did this all start these last couple of weeks? Because there's 28 families that the Israeli government and Israeli settlers are trying to kick out of their homes in East Jerusalem because they're not Jewish. This shit is really simple. It's not complicated. 
There's a state that says this group of people gets more rights than this other group of people. And this other group of people happens to be the indigenous people of the land who have been there for thousands of years. That's called colonialism, apartheid. There's a lot of names for it. Uh, democracy is not one of them. So, I mean, this is not difficult. Mm-hmm. We have less rights because we're not Jewish. Very simple. Now, uh, let's go Let's go back a little bit to your uh, your career as a comedian. Um, what are some like, when are you, what are your most interesting highlights when you realize to yourself, oh, this is actually something I want to do. And this is actually like, you know, turning out to, you know, giving me a platform because you've, you've, you're pretty well known in the community. And, you know, a lot of people speak on what you've accomplished. And so was there like a specific moment in your career where you're like, ah, okay, this is, this is going to get somewhere. You know, nothing specific, but, uh, you know, when I do events and Arab Americans come up to me after and say, thanks for saying what we think. And, you know, I work in this thing over here, so I can't say it. So thanks for saying what I can't say. You know, when you are when you are at least feel and there's some people who feel like you're speaking for them, that is an accomplishment. And that means you're going to have always have like a base of support that pushes you in a certain direction. So, um, you know, that started happening for me around 2007 or eight when I decided to, you know, become more political with my comedy. Um, And that, uh, so that's what I was, aside from a specific incident, it was that sort of process of, of, of Arabs and Palestinians feeling like they had a voice on the comedy stage through me. And if you're Palestinian and talk about Palestine in America, that means your opportunities are going to be much more limited. I mean, you're not going to get, you're not going to get on TV. You're not going to get on late night shows and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's fine with me. I mean, when I'm walking around Ramallah or Nazareth or Haifa or Jerusalem, people stop me and say, hey, Amr, I love what you do. Hey, let's come take a picture. That kind of connection is way more important to me than if somebody in Hollywood thought I was good enough. If I had to pick one or another, I'll pick the first one all day. Have you had any opportunities come up from the Hollywood world that you like rejected or? Well, no, no. I, I, I get, for instance, you know, comedy clubs. And, um, you know, other things in mass media entertainment will call me sometimes or, or my agent will call them. I used to have an agent for a while. We'll call them and try to sell me to them. And and they'll see my resume and be like, wow, you know, this guy, Kennedy Center, Carnegie Hall, lots of shows. OK, cool. Let's bring him to our comedy club. Then they do a little more research on me and they say, oh, you know, this is um, too controversial or too political or all that kind of stuff, which is something they only say to Arabs and Palestinians. They don't say that to black people or Latinos or anything like that. So, you know, that's what we deal with. And um, I, I want to touch point on like anybody that's looking to kind of build a platform and, you know, go against the force like you have, because you've, you've gone against a pretty huge force and you have to let go of a lot of things to be able to do that. Uh, what kind of recommendations would you give to like the young, let's say Muslim generation that are coming up right now, or just the young Middle Eastern generation who want to speak up and want to build their own platform? Um, what approach do you recommend they take? Because at least for me, I see a lot of kids that I know that go to protests and do certain things. And I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, so, you know, from your perspective, knowing that you've had a successful career, uh, what approach have you taken? And what can you recommend for others to take? Well, what I would say to Arab Americans, and that's who I would speak to Arab Americans. There's no such thing as Middle Eastern, by the way. It's a colonial racist term. It means east of white people. You got to be east of something. Arab Americans. So it means east of white people. (laughs) Yeah, Arab Americans. Um, What I what I would say to them is, look, if you're going to do something like comedy, but whatever art form you're going to do, 
you know, usually there's three sort of um, elements that will make you successful. And I didn't figure that out for a while. And that is honesty. You always got to be honest on stage. Okay. Uh, talk about your real truth and, 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 and never insult the intelligence of the audience. Um, transparency. So you really got to let people in. I mean, on, as a comedian, you have to have a conversation with people on the stage as if they've known you for 20 years, that level of like intimacy and confidence. And the last thing is um, vulnerability. You know, you need to be super vulnerable in order to uh, um, achieve anything on a stage or in art. So those three things, honesty, uh, transparency, and vulnerability, if you keep those things in mind, I think you'll do okay. Do you do a lot of practice behind the scenes backstage? I uh, know comedy is a weird art form where, you know, you write things down and you sort of think of how to deliver them, but you have no idea whether it's going to work until you actually get in front of people. So you need to get it. It's not like playing an instrument where you can rehearse and you're like, okay, I, I think I'm pretty good. And then you go do it on stage. You, there's no substitute for the crowd. You know, there's no such thing, for instance, as a, um, you know, a, a comedy show recorded in a, in a studio with no with no audience stand-up comedy needs an audience so you don't really know things work until you get out in front of people so you can't really practice per se you can sort of prepare but i don't know if you can practice you have to practice live any embarrassing stories you've had or moments that you're like cracked a joke and nobody laughed and you're like oh well that didn't work uh sure i mean that happens a lot um well, I want to say it happens a lot, especially when you're trying things out, when you're experimenting with things. Now I've gotten to a point where I've, I have a much better feel of like what I'm doing and what works and what doesn't work and all that kind of stuff. But sure. But that's part of the process. I mean, you know, getting I don't want to say getting booed, but having a joke that crashes and burns. It's very normal. I mean, if, if that never happened to you, how would you know when something was successful? So and how would you know the difference? So, I, uh, you know, I, it's normal to have jokes that crash and burn, obviously. Yeah, well, hey, I'm, you know, my man, I don't want to, I know you're like tough on time. I know you got like a lot of different things going on. So yeah, I, I appreciate you for hopping on. By the way, my last question, I was shocked. You have your number on Instagram just like there. It's like, I've never seen anybody do that. I was trying to book you on and I just hey, like, man. oh, I could just text them. Okay. Hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a comedian who manages myself. I need, I need people to get in touch with me so they can pay me money to tell jokes. So, you know, <laughs> my phone number is out there. You know, plus shocked. I'm 43. I'm 43 and single. And my mom thinks I'm gay. So I might as well put my number out there and see if I can achieve anything that way. But uh, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm pretty I'm a pretty accessible dude. No, but yeah, because I've had like, you know, I've had to spend like months on end booking people that like your caliber who have done a lot of things. And I was like, oh, wait, I appreciate that. This is this is easy. OK, I'm just going to yeah. text them. <laughs> Ten yeah, minutes I'm later, not... you text me back. You're like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, no, let's, uh, you know, as Arab Americans, especially, let's be out there and support each other. And, um, you know, we that means we have to be accessible. And I, you know, and I'm proud of you for putting this together and to be an example to other young Arab Americans to get out there and do something, especially in today's world. The tools are out there for us. So get out there and do something. So, Adam, I'm proud of you, man. Thank you, man. I'm not, I'm not going to lie, man. I did a lot of preparation for this one. This is probably one of my hardest episodes to film <laughs> because this is a very sensitive subject. And I'm like, God damn, I don't want to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, you did. You did a great job. And I'm proud of you, brother. Hey, man, appreciate your time. And where can people find you if they want to look you up, check you out or text you? I yeah, guess, all my all date. my yeah, right. <laughs> all my all my handles are just my first and last name. So A-M-E-R-Z-A-H-R on Instagram and Twitter. Search my name on Facebook and YouTube. You'll find everything. But yeah, just my first and last name. You'll find me everywhere.
Awesome. Awesome. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for hopping on the show, my man. Okay. Thanks, Adam.